Uh, right now, though, we want to look at a, a new book called Treasures of World History, uh, because some of the most beautiful, significant and influential human creations feature in that book. Authors Peter Snow and Anne Macmillan describe it as the story of civilization told through its 50 most important documents. And Peter Snow and Anne Macmillan join me now from London. And thank you both very much for joining me this morning. Um, and can I first congratulate you on the book? It is beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of art almost in and of itself, full of all these fascinating documents um, that tell the story, as you say, of our civilization. Um, can I ask you first, what, when, when you thought of documents, what, what was in your head in terms of uh, what, what constituted a document? Well, I think, Sarah, um, things written by human beings from the beginning of history until today, just even if it's a, a few dashings on the back of an envelope, uh, or of course a great screed like Magna Carta or the Book of Kells, whatever. I mean, these things are human monuments to human endeavor. And we also in this book tried to be have a huge geographical spread as well as a very big time spread. Our first document is from 4,000 years ago. It's a, actually a huge stone with the carvings of uh, a code of laws by uh, a um, by Hammurabi, and that's the, that that was. Uh, found by accident almost by archaeologists in the early 1900s but we we and we also wanted as i mentioned a geographical spread so we we've um, covered just about every continent and uh, as many countries as possible yeah and we might look at some of the documents and, and stories and issues that you did cover um the magna carta is there from from 1215 you might explain the significance of that Good old Magna Carta. Yes, you can't really avoid it. It's a favorite schoolboys and schoolgirls. It's a history lesson. Uh, it's just vital. It's the first real time when a king, those terrible chaps who used to run the country way back, including Ireland, for God's sake, um, they used to have everything their own way. I mean, they were the, sort of, you know, they, they, they were the rulers of everything. And the barons in 1215 just thought King John was just going a bit too far. And so they sat him down at Runnymede and they said, look, mate, you know, you're going to agree to this, this and this. And the expert on this one. Well, it's had a huge influence because it, it said that the king no longer had the right to dictate laws, that people would be judged by their by their peers. And it had a profound influence right down through the generations. And in fact, the American Revolution, I'm Canadian, but the American Revolution um, used it as a way of getting rid of British governance. And it, it's absolutely fascinating. And people still refer to it. Nelson Mandela, for example, refer, referred to it in his famous courtroom speech in South Africa. Everybody has a slightly different view of what it is, but it, nonetheless, it is one of the foundational legal documents of history. You also looked at the Odyssey then, um, and obviously an ancient work of literature. I, how much, or is it possible to work out how much of the Odyssey represents historical fact? I mean, was there a Trojan War? Probably very little. I mean, it's just a wonderful story. Um, I think that there was no question that there was a siege of Troy. Troy was burned round about 1200 BC. Uh, poor old Troy, the Greeks were over and bashed it up. Uh, and a, a, but whether a chap called Odysseus uh, escaped from the thing and had invented the wooden horse and then went all the way home to find his wife having experiences with lots of suitors, <laughs> well, that's all true. Goodness knows. But he's just a wonderful story. Mm. The Greeks are very good at stories. Um, what about the Book of Kells? Because you came to Dublin, as you oh. say, and you went you went uh, all around the world, and that included Dubl Dublin. What attracted you to the Book of Kells? Couldn't avoid Dublin. I was born there, for heaven's sake. So it's, <laughs> it's a special place for me. Um, well, we we decided we'd uh, run the Book of Kells. This is one of the most wonderful 
uh, medieval manuscripts, well, early medieval, 800, BC, uh, 800 AD. So it's the most beautiful manuscript written by these monks in Iona, in the wilds of Scotland. Um, they were they were Irish monks, and they decided the Danes were being so boring and uh, so so ravaging in uh, Scotland that they decided to take their book, which was half written, to Kells and finish it there. So they took it to Kells, and it's just the most wonderful document. I'm sure you, if you've been to Trinity College, you've seen it, Sarah. Mm-hmm. But it's it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing to look at. And the thing about I mean, it's the fun of it. What makes it so Irish? I think is the humour. I mean, all these fun little animals who creep into the text. Uh, sort of little snakes sort of jumping around. And also, if you look at the Virgin Mary on, on one of the pages, I mean, I know we can't see it now, but, but if in you look book, at the, It's in the book. It's in the book. It's in the wonderful picture in the book of the Virgin Mary sitting there with Jesus on her lap. <laughs> and Jesus is depicted as an old man. This little baby has an old man's face. And I think, we, I mean, there's sort of some of the experts on the Book of Girls thing, there's probably the monks looking at each other and saying, Look, how do we do Jesus' face? I'll tell you what, George, uh, why don't you let us do your face as a sort of model and then that'll be Jesus. <laughs> so, so George fun. made it into the Book of Kells, perhaps, <laughs> on that basis. Um, one of the ones that jumped out at me, Anne, was uh, you consider an early feminist work, a Vindication of the Rights of Woman from 1792. Tell me a little more about that. Well, that's the uh, famous Mary Wilsoncraft. Uh, who was a leading philosopher in the 18th century. And she grew up and watched her brother being sent off to university while she, while she and her sisters were taught how to be good housekeepers. And she realized something wasn't quite fair. And we're talking about uh, 1792 when the book was published. And um, she, like many of the philosophers of the day, were, was very keen on reason. She felt that reason was all important. And she reckoned that men and women both could use reason, and that God regarded men and women as the same. So why couldn't women have the opportunities of men? So she wrote this um, very important book, and she advocated that women seek to improve themselves through education, to stop just being housewives, and as she called them, poodles of, of their husbands. And uh, it was fascinating. It was, it was not badly received at the time, which might have been surprising considering mm-hmm. that women were not very liberated in those days. But unfortunately for her, she had a very um, interesting husband called William Godwin, who was a, a, a British philosopher. And she died giving birth to her daughter, Mary. And this is another wonderful bit of the backstory to this, Mary, who later became Mary Shelley. So Mary oh, Wollstonecraft's okay. daughter became Mary Shelley, who wrote um, uh, Dracula, of course. And uh, I'm sorry, not Dracula, um, Frankenstein. And um, anyway, William Godwin, when Mary died giving birth to her daughter, Mary, decided he had to write his wife's biography. And he decided to do it warts and all. And Mary Wollstonecraft had had a rather sort of unusual uh, <laughs> life. She had Gone to after she wrote her book, she had gone to France to support the French Revolution, fallen in love with an American, had his child. He refused to marry her. She was distraught, tried to commit suicide. So William Goodwin put all this in his book, and she was immediately reviled in death. She everybody said, We can't read this woman's book, it's scandalous. So it took a hundred years before feminists in the 1900s uh, rediscovered her in a way. So she, at long last, was recognized as the mother of feminism. Wow, fascinating story. Um, you discuss as well many international accords and, and, and treaties. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, yes. I mean, 
uh, you know, all the wonderful things like the Treaty of Tordesillas, which decided which bit of the world Portugal would have and which bit of the world Spain would have. And one other one that I love is the is the extraordinary Berlin Agreement of uh, 1885. The Berlin Agreement, which was all the imperial powers, including us chaps of the British Isles, deciding which bits of Africa we'd like. And so we carve it all up. And uh, the Berlin Conference decided that, uh, you know, the British would have East Africa, the Germans would have a bit of East Africa, West Africa, the French would have West Africa, and so on and so forth. And there wasn't a single African involved in this agreement, this conference. It's absolutely all the, sort of, the chaps in the imperial powers. And it was a disgraceful document. And that's only 140 years ago. Uh, and that's a fascinating piece of paper. It's, it's, it's given rise to all the troubles in Africa in many ways. Turning to music then and Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and it's there with all the little uh, the little music notes scribbled on the pages in, in, in the picture. Um, why is that work held in such high regard? Well, it was interesting, Sarah, because we obviously wanted to include a piece of music in our book. And we thought, now, who do we who do we uh, pick? And we suddenly both looked at each other and we went, da, 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 da. <laughs> and that, of course, is the opening chord of the fifth, Beethoven's fifth. So that was an obvious choice to us. And again, the story is fascinating. I mean, he was sitting in Vienna when he wrote it being bombarded by Napoleon's forces. He had to put a pillow over his head so that he could think about the music. I mean, it's all of these documents. have <laughs> well, such a Well, he was. I mean, that was another problem. But he, he was trying to protect his hearing as much as possible. Uh, and then there's obviously quite a bit for more recent times as well. You discuss, for example, Anne Frank's diary. Absolutely. Um, that's another one that's close to my heart, particularly, because we went to look at the house in Amsterdam that... Anne Frank and her family hid in from 1942 to 1944, hiding from the Nazis because, of course, they were Jewish. And again, that's a book that we feel it, it, it just is so important in terms of the Second World War, the Holocaust, the 20th century. It's something that we felt could not be left out. Mm. Peter, was there any of the 50 documents that stood out above the others to you? Well, they all do, really, because we chose them from about 200 altogether. We honed them down rather regretfully from 250. Um, yes, I mean, I, I, one I love is the uh, little poem uh, written by a chap called Francis Scott Key who was standing in a boat watching the British bombardment of Baltimore in 1814. He was standing there watching it, wondering what on earth Baltimore would survive, this huge bombardment. Uh, and... Uh, uh, he, he was staggered to see that in the morning after this bombardment by the British Navy began, the Star Spangled Banner was still flying over the fortress of Baltimore. Mm. And so he wrote a little poem and he went, oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light? And he scribbled this poem down. It was a nice little poem I've written that really describes how excited I am to see the Star Spangled Banner still flying. And he went home to his pub and he had a drink in the evening and he, he showed it to a mate and the mate said, oh, that's a nice little poem. Let's set it to a, a drinking song. And they had a British drinking song which went, you, I won't sing it to you. Yeah, go on. Oh, say, can you? And uh, so they set this thing to the, the drinking song and uh, music. Uh, and do you know, it was 130 years before it became the American National Anthem. So yeah. slowly but surely, people started singing it and talking about it. And very gradually, people thought, hang on, it's the American National Anthem. It should be the American National Anthem. But what I think is such fun about it, Sarah, is that it means that we Brits 
inspired the American national anthem. Oh, of course you did. <laughs> well, listen, thank you both so much for joining me. It's a fascinating book. And as I said, um, beautiful book as well, just to look at. And the pictures are just beautiful. It's called Treasures of World History. And the authors there, we were speaking to Peter Snow and Anne Macmillan. Thank you both so much for joining us this morning. Do stay with us because Louise Reynolds, dietitian, has some tips. You don't have to have soggy sandwiches in the school box. We have other ideas for you. Today with Sarah McInerney on RTE Radio 1.